Mark chapter 9, as we continue on through the Gospel of Mark, we have been uh, following through and discovering Jesus in the pages of the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus has introduced in the midst of his teaching and his ministry to his disciples, he's introduced now for the first time this idea that before he demonstrates his power in setting up a kingdom and overthrowing Rome and all of that that they were expecting, that first he's going to have to suffer and die. And the Old Testament talked about it. Many of you know Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant, the, the Messiah who will have to first suffer and be rejected uh, and, and before he sets up his kingdom. Well, he's introduced that idea and they're having a hard time comprehending it. They're having a hard time understanding how those things can go hand in hand. A Messiah, the Savior, who's going to suffer. But not only that, that he's going to suffer, but also that those that follow him will also suffer. And I'm not talking about the, the normal, everyday suffering of, of living on the face of the earth, because we know, I mean, things are just getting worse and worse, it seems. The world is a wreck right now. And so there's a normal amount of suffering that happens just by being human and living on the earth, in, in a sin-filled earth. But then there is suffering that's extra because you love Jesus. Because you're willing to say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Because you're willing to say, no, me and my family, we don't do that. We love the Lord. He's who we were. So there's extra suffering. So for those of you that really enjoy suffering, you can become a Christian and you can have your fill. And he's explaining this to them. And he says it. Warren took you through it last week. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I mean, what are you going to give in exchange for your soul? And Warren took you through that. Now, the interesting thing to me, and one of the things I'm fascinated about is motivation. I, I love to think about and wonder about what motivates people. Because we are interesting creatures, aren't we? I mean, we are crazy creatures. And there, everything you do is motivated by something. There's something that makes you do it. Sometimes it's obligation. Sometimes it's money. Could be pride. Could be a lot of different things. But one of the chief motivators, those that study these things have found out, is one of the things that chiefly motivates people is recognition if you know you're going to get recognized. So I'm fascinated by people that do stuff like climb Mount Everest. I mean, that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. And you've got to buy equipment, and you've got to train, and you've got to fly there, and you've got to hire guides and Sherpas, and, and you've got to climb. And then sometimes, guys, they, they don't make it for a variety of reasons, and they have to come down before they've summited. So guess what? The next year, they do it again. More hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what motivates a person to want to reach that pinnacle is it to say, I did it, I accomplished it? What motivates someone like Diana Nyad, a hyper-athlete, to swim from Florida to Cuba or vice versa? What's the sacrifice involved? What's, she got stung all over her body by jellyfish. I mean, it was miserable. I'm like, so why do it? But there's, and there's probably things, if you think about your own life, there's probably certain things that you've been willing to sacrifice if the resultant achievement you considered worth it. Think about even even in youth athletics. I mean, even in youth sports, even in various endeavors that you might be involved in, you're willing to endure a little suffering if you know, if in your mind the motivation is great enough that, and the outcome is, is suitable enough that you'll be willing to do it. And so as Jesus is talking about this, I mean, what if you became the greatest athlete in the face of the earth? Would you be willing to trade your soul for that? Think about what athletes 
suffer. Think about what athletes give up to get into the Olympics. The money, the time, the training, all that to get an earthly crown. And so we recognize that people are willing to suffer for the right kind of things. And so he's telling his disciples about suffering and about what things really matter. What will you give, you know, your soul is the most important thing ever. I mean, you can be the greatest athlete in hell. And who cares? I mean, right? I mean, who, I mean, I'm just trying to be honest. But you're, so as he introduces this idea about suffering, and not just the fact that he's going to suffer, but his disciples are going to suffer too, he says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here, as he's speaking to them about these things, who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now the question is, you know, we look at that and we say, well, you know, that seems to be talking about the second coming of Christ. When he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth, the millennial reign of Christ. And, well, Steve, that didn't happen and all these guys are dead. The disciples that were there. I mean, humanly speaking. So, is the Bible wrong? Was Jesus wrong? Or is it possible, and I think what we will all agree, is that what Jesus was saying is that what he's about to show three of his disciples, his transfiguration on, on, on the mountain, is what he's speaking about. They're going to see a glimpse into the power uh, and the glory of the kingdom of God. Elijah is going to be there and Moses is going to be there. Are you going to be there? Good question. And he's going to show them a glimpse into that. And so that's what he's speaking of. They won't taste death. They're going to see. They're the only ones that are going to see. Look at, look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. What mountain? We don't know. It doesn't matter. Most people think Mount Hermon, but don't get hung up on that. Uh, it doesn't matter what mountain. The issue is, the thing to me is, three guys. I mean, why not all 12? Come on, guys. I got something I want to show you. Uh, I think it's Luke that tells us they went up there to pray. That was the idea. They were going up there to pray on this mountain. They have no idea what's going on or what's about to happen. They could have missed the prayer meeting and missed seeing what they saw. That's why I don't like to miss a prayer meeting. Because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen at a prayer meeting, how the Lord is going to show up and how you're going to see something and learn something that you've never seen before. But he takes those three. Now, those three seem to have a special place. They seem to be Jesus' favorites. I mean, they're the three that he takes when he heals Jairus' daughter, when he raises her from the dead. Just those three. And then they're the three that are going to be with him praying or sleeping in the garden while Jesus is praying. And they're the only three taken to this secretive prayer meeting so those three, hey guys, the rest of you hang here. I'm just taking Peter, James, and John, and we're going to go up on the mountain and pray. And they're going to see something that no other human eyes at that time uh, had ever seen. So he takes these three. Why those three? I have no idea. But he takes those three apart by themselves. And then Mark says it, he was transfigured before them. I mean, that's like a mouthful in one sentence. Talk about a, a clarity. Talk about simplicity it just says and he was transfigured now matthew uses the same word he was transfigured luke doesn't use that word he just says the appearance of his face was altered and the word altered means it's the word heteros in greek became something different i mean this is a phenomenal thing that happens the question is 
what is it that we're, that's going on? I mean, this story shows up in three of the four Gospels. Matthew shares it. Mark shares it. Luke shares it. John, who was there, doesn't tell the story in his Gospel. But he does say this in chapter 1. He says to those reading, The Word became flesh, you know it, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. I think that was a reference to what John saw here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Interesting notes, the word transfigured uh, here, it's a translation of the Greek word that we get metamorphosis from. So he was metamorphosized, if you can say that, on the mountain. What does that mean? That is an inward change. To go through a metamorphosis, you know the, ba- the butterfly that comes from a caterpillar. Now the butterfly just doesn't strap on wings, right? And, you know, he's not like a caterpillar trying to pretend he's a butterfly, his very essence has changed. And that's a metamorphosis. That's the same word, metamorphose, used in Matthew, used here in Mark. The same word is used in uh, Romans chapter 12. Don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Same word, it also shows up in 2 Corinthians as well. Four times that word is used. It speaks of an inward transformation that leads to an outward change. Now, some people try to live the Christian life by just changing the outside. And that's called hypocrisy. Well, I want to look like a butterfly, so I'll strap on the wings and I'll get a, a, a false little tongue that comes out and, and it falls off every so often. That's the problem. Those wings, they just don't stay attached and they fall off because you're, you've not been changed. You've not been born again. That's the word metamorphosis. So Jesus on this mountain is changed. I love the way that these guys try to explain it. I mean, you look at the difficulty they have, which I think is the same reason that you don't very often hear sermons on the Mount of Transfiguration. We all know it sort of in there, but think about when the last time you heard a sermon on this was. Now, if you've come to Calvary Chapel, we did it in Matthew just a few years ago. But a lot of guys will avoid this because it's a difficult passage. It's hard to understand because what do we have? How do we understand the things that revolve around the glory of God, the Shekinah or the brightness, the presence of the glory of God. I mean, it's hard to comprehend. And look at the difficulty they have explaining it. Uh, if we go to the, don't go there, but I'll read to you the Gospel of Luke. Luke says his appearance was, uh, of his face was altered. His robe was white and glistening, which means to flash out like lightning, to be radiant. You know, maybe you've said to your wife, oh, honey, you look so radiant. You better, if you haven't said that, say it. It's worth a lot. Better than flowers, I think. Maybe not. I don't know. But, oh, honey, you look so radiant. And you know when she's dressed up for that, going to the wedding or whatever you're doing, and she just got on her best clothes and all, oh, honey, you look so, you're glowing. Well, you think she's radiant. Where do you see the Lord? Where do you see our groom? I mean, he is, in his glory, he is absolutely stunning and radiant. So not just talks about his face, but also his clothing, his whole persona is, has changed in nature, so to speak, has changed in, in appearance. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes were as the light. So his face shining is the word lampo, where we get lamp. He is not just reflecting the glory of God. He is radiating the glory of God. He is the glory of God. 
The writer of Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the outshining of the glory of God. And again, John tells us he, he came to tabernacle among us, to, to dwell in a tent, his human flesh. Where do we think about in the Old Testament? Where do you think about the presence of the glory of God dwelling? In the tabernacle. They're above the ark. If they wanted to go meet with God, you had to go behind the veil. That's where the presence of God was, the light, the, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, all these ways that they would see the presence of God in, in this bright, white, whiter than you could ever think light. His face shone and his clothes were as the light. Mark, here in, in our Gospel of Mark, look what he says. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow. And, and this cracks me up. I'm like, he's just trying to find words to explain this thing. To, so he says like, well, you know, maybe like when you take your clothes to the dry cleaner. Like, could, could, really, Mark, could you not come up with something better than dry cleaning metaphors here? Like, no launderer on earth can whiten them. I mean, you take out your best bleach and your best white shirt, and you bleach that thing so it is glistening white. Like the snow, when you get up in the morning, and you look out the window, and you knew the predictions were for snow, and you go to sleep, and all night it snows, and you wake up before the deer have, have gone through the snow, before anybody's walked in it, and you look at that snow, and the sun is out in the morning, and it's just glistening off the snow. It's shining. It's radiating. That's the idea that he's trying to trying to communicate. How do you communicate these things? Very difficult. So this is what they see. Now the miracle, I think, of, of all of this is not that he was transfigured. They are seeing him. Remember, they are getting a glimpse into the future. Post-resurrection, he will appear in a glorified body. Father, glorify me again with the glory with which I had before the world was, John 17 says. He's going to have a glorified body. And that's what they're seeing. The miracle isn't that he let it out here. The miracle is that he kept it in the rest of the time. I mean, I could think of some really, I mean, if I had that ability, I mean, if we were living for glory of people, and Jesus certainly could, I mean, if I had that ability to, to demonstrate that glory of God, because we all love to do that. We love to demonstrate our glory to people. We love to tell people how great we are. And if we're not great, we make it and then we put it on Facebook. It's hard for us. We, we want to make sure people know we're important. We want to make sure people know we're good, we're great, we're, you know, we, we've done some things. And so we always we're just let it out, you know, shine. But Jesus held it back. I mean, if I was him, like when Judas betrayed me, and when, he came to, when they came to arrest me, it's nighttime, and they're all with their, you know, their, they got their torches going, and they come to arrest Jesus, I'd be like, hold on a second. You know, I'd let it just come out and they'd be like oh sorry we had the wrong guy but he holds it in he holds it in he's gonna have to suffer first and then glory remember this is god's ordained way suffering first then glory if you aren't willing to suffer with me then you won't be willing to have glory with me if you aren't willing to suffer for me then you won't be able to experience the glory with me. Because Jesus is who he is. If you deny him before men, he'll deny you before the Father. So following, listen, make no mistake about it. Because we're in a church system right now that, that loves to, to tell you that you can have it all. You can have blessing and honor and glory here on earth and in heaven. 
But the Bible sends this, the, the, the very real message that if you choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it will cost you something now. But won't it be worth it then? And again, well, what are you willing to give up to get glory here on earth? What are you willing to, to give up so people will love you, so people will accept you, so you can get that job advanced, so you can, you know, be accepted by that crowd, so you can tell those jokes, so you can be part of the increase. What are you willing, you willing to give up those things for a future presence and glory with God? I mean, it seems, I think if we really were, it would change the way we live. If you really can get a grasp on what's being seen here, it'll change the way you live, it'll change the way you think, but it's by faith. And by reading this story, now they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus demonstrates and shows to them, hey, he is not reflecting God's glory. He is God's glory. And then the party gets bigger. Verse 4 says, Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So like, this happens every day. You know, they're just hanging out. There's Jesus and Moses and Elijah and they're talking. The problem is, those guys have been dead for a long time. And they're not zombies. They're not like, you know, pieces have fallen off. And there they are. And they're recognizable. Now, I don't know what you think happens when you die. If you ask people, that's another one of those great holiday questions. So you're sitting around the table and with your relatives and your friends, you haven't seen them in a while, and chowing on the turkey or whatever you're going to have for Thanksgiving. And so what do you guys think happens when you die? Well, we're not inviting him back to Thanksgiving again. Most people don't want to think about that. I just want to enjoy my life. Don't make me think about those things. But it might just be too late by the time you decide to think about what is eternal life all about. Is there eternal life? Is it annihilation that when I die, I am just cease to, cease to exist? Is it reincarnation? I die and I... I, I, I die as, if I had a good life, I come back as a, uh, as a, a prince of some foreign country. If I have a bad life, I come back as a cockroach. I gotta, now, how as a cockroach am I going to make a better life? I don't know. You know, maybe I'm a good cockroach. I don't, but this is reincarnation. You know, you do good in this life, you come back as a, as a higher level. You do bad in this life, you come back at a lower level, working out your karma. Uh, do you believe that? Jesus didn't believe that. And after this, Peter, James, and John didn't believe that. They're looking at Moses and Elijah right there. And they're talking with Jesus. They can talk. They're recognizable. They're glorified. They're there. They are what Jesus is trying to hold out to the disciples as the potential for their future. But there is this in-between time. The challenge we have as Americans is we want it all and we want it now. This idea of delayed gratification, that if I I might have to give something up now to get something better later. Ooh, ah. I want better now and better later. It's a hard concept. But what if you can't have better now and better later? I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I would never trade my life with Christ for anything. Christ has made my life a thousand times better. I had it all messed up. And Christ has made my life full. I'm never going to be the richest man and I'm never going to be on the cover of Time Magazine or Sports Illustrated or any of those things. I'm not even going to get there on the cover of Fluvanna Review for crying out loud. <laughs> because we live in a world that rejects Jesus and more and more so. 
So don't get me wrong when I say there's some, there's some, there's the delayed ratification. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, He changes your life. He changes your mind. He changes the way you think. And, and, and I mean, it's just, I can't explain it to anybody that doesn't know it, that doesn't experience it. But there is this understanding that if we live for Him, and if He suffered, then we'll also suffer with Him. And if we suffer with Him, then we will be glorified with him as well. So there's Elijah and there's Moses with him. They just appear. Uh, why, Elijah, uh, why Elijah and Moses? I can't say for sure. There, God doesn't tell us for sure. Why not Abraham? Why not Enoch, who was, you know, who, who lived and then he was not because God took him. He was the first person to sort of get raptured. Elijah is the second, you know, or, or another, excuse me, another that got raptured. Remember, Elijah didn't die. He was sort of taken up to heaven by the chariots of fire. Just like the, the people of the church that are alive when Christ comes for his church for the rapture, those that are alive at the time of the rapture when the church is taken off the face of the earth will not have to die. You're just going to be changed in midair. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. That some will sleep and some will be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, you will receive that glorified body in an instant. I mean, I, I'd love that now. So Elijah, sort of representative of maybe people that, you know, and he's in heaven, he, he's, he's, or he's glorified. He didn't die, he was sort of raptured. Moses did die, and they couldn't find his body. Uh, nobody knows where his body was buried. There was a fight about it in the book of Jude, we read about that. But there's Moses. And what are they talking to Jesus about? Luke tells us they're talking about his decease, that he's going to accomplish, never thought about your decease as accomplishing something. been working hard all my life for this, to accomplish my decease. But it's literally the word exodus in Greek, to accomplish about the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Speaking clearly of his crucifixion, now, we, when we hear the word exodus, we definitely connect that with Moses, right? Because Moses was the one who led the children of Israel out of Egypt. The Passover lamb was killed. They put the blood over the doorpost. Those that were covered by the blood did not have anybody die in their household. And then the whole nation is set free. But all of them die in the wilderness, except for two, right? They all die because of unbelief. How do you do it? I mean, you see all that happened and you still die in the wilderness because of unbelief. We do the same thing. So they're talking about Jesus' exodus. That's the more perfect exodus. The exodus from slavery to sin. Jesus says, whom the sun sets free is what, folks? It's free indeed. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Elijah, uh, and both Moses and Elijah had had personal experiences with the glory of God. Go back to Moses for a second. Remember, Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. And God said, well, you can't see my glory or you'll die. I mean, like, you know, I was telling the first service, if you try to look into the sun, you're just... The sun is so bright. If you stare into it for too long, you, go, you get blinded, you know, and everybody has spots all around. My wife taught me how to weld. How about that, huh? My wife taught me how to weld, and the first lesson I learned was you can't look at the place where the weld is happening because it'll burn your eyes. And that's man-made. And so Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, well, you can't see my glory directly, so I'm going to put you in this rock in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to make my glory pass by you. And then after I'm gone, I'll remove my hand. You can turn around and look, and you'll see my afterglow. 
And Elijah had the same kind of thing. Remember, he was bummed out because he'd had the Mount Carmel experience where he challenged the, the priests of Baal and it, it challenged his people to, you know, hey, if God is God, serve him. Well, then right on the heels of that, Ahab and Jezebel say, hey, we're, gonna, we're coming after you, Elijah. We're going to kill you. And so Elijah goes off on his own. He ends up in a cave in Mount Horeb. And God makes his glory to pass by Elijah. And it, it, first Elijah sees a, there's a great earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And don't hold me to the order of these. I'm going from memory. And then there's a great fire, and God's not in the fire. And then there's a great wind, and God's not in the wind. And then there's a still, small voice. And that's, that's where God was, in the still, small voice. So both of these guys have experiences in their lives with the presence of the glory of God. So uh, most people say Moses also represents the law, the giving of the law, and all the glory that was with the giving of the law, but not even anything to be compared to the glory of the Spirit that Jesus will send after his crucifixion and resurrection. Elijah, what would he represent, folks? He'd represent the prophets. So there's Jesus talking with Moses, the one who represents the giving of the law, and Elijah, the one who represents the, the, the ministry of the prophets, and both of them are going to be recognizing that the fulfillment of what both of those said, all of that culminated in Christ. Both the, the law and the prophets all pointed to one man, Christ. And so Moses and Elijah are there uh, talking with Jesus. So Luke tells us they were kind of in and out of sleep. Peter wakes up, and when they're fully awake, they see what's going on. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Well, thank you, Peter, for that. You know, we weren't sure, you know, we're glad to have your affirmation that you're here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Hey, I got an idea. I want to live in the moment. So this is awesome. I want to stay here. Let's build you a shrine. For the pre the, let's build one for the presence of, of Jesus. Let's build one for the presence of Moses. And let's build one for the presence of Elijah. And it, it quite possibly was the time of, of year for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the, uh, one of the feasts of Israel. It happened in the fall, just like around the time that we are now. And they would live in tents. And so some say that this is about six months before the crucifixion. So six months, the crucifixion was in the spring. So six months before it would be in the fall. And it would have been the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles for the Jews represented the time when they were living in, in temporary structures, traveling 40 years in the wilderness. But it also came to, to look forward to the time when they would be right again with God and dwell with God in the millennial kingdom. So it's not, on, uh, it's not out of character. It's not off the charts for Peter to suggest building these three tabernacles to say, hey, we're there. I mean, we've arrived. You're in glory, Moses in glory, Elijah in glory. This is, this is it. But we also know, if you read on, so you go, well, Peter, why did you say that? He said that, verse 6 tells us, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Now, if that was me there, I mean, put yourself in Peter's place. I mean, there you are, and you're seeing what you're seeing. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're taking a selfie. You know it. And I know it. You're like, okay, guys, you know, selfie of me and Moses and Jesus and Elijah. You guys, because your friends are never going to believe this. So you've got to do the selfie or you're taking the video thing. And, and Peter does this because he doesn't know. He is, they're, they're out of their minds. They don't know what to say. And so, of course, Peter breaks, breaks good sense. And because he doesn't know what to say, 
he just says the first thing that comes to his mind. How many of you have come to learn it's not a good idea? Discretion is the better part of valor. It's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're a fool than to open it and prove them they were right. So he says, let's build these three tabernacles. And, and we're like that as human beings. I mean, people try to build shrines to anything and everything if they can. Let's commemorate this spot with a shrine. Let's commemorate this spot with a shrine. Let's commemorate that. This is what happened here. And everything's got shrines, and that's where everybody goes to worship. And Jesus doesn't want these guys coming back up here to worship Moses or Elijah. It's just Jesus. He's the one that all this is pointing to. He didn't know what to say, so he just kind of says it. And, and I think there's a great temptation to try to live in those spiritual moments, you know, live from spiritual experience to spiritual experience. They're not meant to stay in the experience. They're meant to get down the mountain and go minister and utilize, be in, in energized by the experience so that it empowers them and assures them for the ministry that they've undertaken. If you've had a spiritual experience, look, there's a lot of people that I talk to. I mean, you go to the soup kitchen and you, you meet all kinds of philosophers there. I mean, probably at work too. Well, here's what I think. I had this experience. I was, you know, living in my van and this happened and the God came to me and he said, I'm giving you all the gifts and he's done this. And he's done, I mean, I hear some stories. I was sitting for 20 minutes listening to a guy tell me about all his spiritual experiences. He's a false teacher. I mean, Satan uses lying signs and wonders. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So they were greatly afraid and a cloud, verse 7, came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Hear Him. Uh, back to Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus, the, the exact representation of the image of God. In previous times, God spoke through prophets and He spoke through holy men. But in these last days, God has definitively and finally spoken through His Son. So I don't know what your denomination says. I don't know what your extra book says. I don't know what the book you got the library says or you got some book from the self-help section of the bookstore. I mean, we are book crazy. We, we read, 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 and never learn. And this is a great word for us. This is my son. Hear him. Again, you can go to all kinds of different sources, but go to the source, read your Bible. See what Jesus said about this. Well, my, the, the, the people who are oversee our denomination, the synod of our church or the, the, the bishops of our denomination, they say this, I don't care what they say. And guess what? Neither does Jesus. He says, God says he approves, he, he affirms Jesus. He talked, said the same thing at his baptism. This is my beloved son. Uh, and now he says, this is my beloved son, Peter. Hush and listen. Wouldn't that go a long way in our lives if we would just sometimes zip it and listen? Husbands? No, I'm not going to go there. <sighs> zip it and listen. This is my son. Hear him. Hear what he's saying. Listen to him. Not the law, not the prophets. All those things just pointed to him, all culminating in Christ. Suddenly, verse 8 says, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but Jesus with themselves. Now, you would think a situation like this and an encounter like this would leave a lasting impression, wouldn't you? I mean, if that was you, like, I would think you'd remember that, that that would be indelibly marked on your brain. 
Well, is that true for Peter? You bet it is. Uh, don't go there, but I'm going to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 1, where he is facing, this is his last letter before his death. This is the time of his departure. He says, I'm about to put off my tent. That's what the, the Bible speaks of your body like a tent. It's just a temporary dwelling place. You're not meant to dwell in this piece of flesh forever. It's just a holding tank for your spirit for now until you get your glorified body later on after you die. So he says, we didn't follow, this may be very particular for someone here, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear that a lot, don't you? Well, the Bible is just a a book written by men to explain things they couldn't understand, just a bunch of myths. Peter says, you couldn't be more far from the truth. We didn't follow, we weren't, we didn't give three years of our lives to following fables and myths and stories. He says, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When were they eyewitnesses of his majesty? Listen, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountains. So Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, is just describing still to the church the experience he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he goes on to say, if I, if I can add one more thing, he goes on to say in verse 19 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he says, so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed. To heed what? The experiences? No, the word. Why do you do well to heed the word? Because the experiences just continue to prove that the word was true all along. There are a lot of people that are hunting for and living for spiritual experience after experience. And you can't trust experiences by themselves. Like I said, going to and talking to people about all kinds of wacky experiences, how how can you build a doctrine on your experience? People are all over the place, all over the charts. I mean, wacky stuff. And Peter says, that was an experience and it was wonderful, but it was wonderful because it just confirmed to us the word we already knew. Made us even more sure that we can trust what God's word says. And you need to know that. And I need to remember that. Because we're going to have to make some choices in our life. And the question is, are you going to search for some experience or some sign or some wonder or something? when you have the Word confirmed right in your hands. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to question. You can read what God's Word says, and you can know that you know that you know that it is accurate and right every time. You can build your life on it. You can stake your destiny on it. I have. You can put all your eggs in one basket. It feels so good to put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, it's scary. Don't get me wrong. It can be scary, but that's faith. So they came down from the mountain, verse 9 says, and he commanded them, this is great, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen. Are you kidding me? Did you get an experience like that? I mean, I'm telling everybody. I'm, guys, you will never believe it. I mean, these are the guys that are going to go on to argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom, right? I mean, Peter, James, and John are like, yeah, we know something you guys don't. What is it? Can't tell you. Sorry. It was pretty great, though. Oh, man, wasn't that great, John? Oh, yeah, it was awesome. What? What? Guys, come on, tell us. No, sorry, can't tell you. Jesus said not to tell. But we know because of that, we know he loves us best. We know, we know we're going to be greatest in the kingdom. Oh, man. You know, I'd have a book tour. 
you know, oh, I spent time with the glorified Christ and I'd have six, you know, six points as to how you can, the six keys to understanding the glorified Christ and we'd have the, the whole thing going, wouldn't we? And he says to them, I want you to keep this a secret. Huh? Keep it a secret? That's what he says. How good are you at keeping secrets? Isn't that interesting? Gossip is a secret you tell one person at a time. There's some things you ha- that happened in your life, ministry, life, even some experiences that you have. Paul had a spiritual experience. He s- explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I can't even, there aren't even words to describe it. You don't, I, I can't even, it's not even lawful to talk about it. Very hesitant. He was, you find truly spiritual people are very, very hesitant to flaunt their experiences that they've had. And sometimes it's very hard to judge even if they were true or not. But you find truly spiritual people are people that are not real outward about, I did this and I did that. And, and, you know. Now, they're going to be able to tell this at some point later on. He says, keep this a secret until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So then you can say, oh, we knew. We knew this was going to happen. I mean, this is gonna, they are going to live off of this experience, or they should, this is what's going to get them through the suffering. This is what's going to get them through even seeing Jesus suffer. At least it should, but it doesn't. Peter denies the Lord. They all walk away. Even though they, these guys had seen this. But after he rises from the dead, then you, can, then you can tell people. So verse 10, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Now, this side of the cross, we understand. He's talking about the resurrection. They understood resurrection. Remember when Jesus comes to, uh, to Lazarus' house. Lazarus has died. He's been dead four days. Mary and Martha are grieving. And, uh, and Jesus says, you know, Lazarus is, is going to live. Says, I know he'll live in the, in the resurrection. This was some future resurrection, some distant uh, time where everybody would be resurrected, some to life, some to death. But the fact that the Messiah would die and then individually rise out from among the dead that's what they're not having the opportunity the ability to comprehend so they kept it to themselves and verse 11 they asked him saying why do the scribes say that elijah must come first i mean all that we're seeing here malachi 4 said elijah is going to come first before the great and awesome day of the lord and he's going to turn the people back to god and turn parents to children and children to parents and all that in malachi chapter 4 so if you have to suffer, I mean, see, Peter's still trying to get around the fact that Jesus shouldn't have to, stuff, to suffer. And verse 12, Jesus answers the question, and he tells them, and he says, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written, again, going back to the word, how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So guys, listen, you've got to look in the Word and you will see if you open your Bible that the Son of Man, the Messiah, has to suffer. Daniel wrote it in his 70 weeks prophecy. This, the Messiah will be cut off for a period of seven, you know, seven weeks and, and you can read that in, in Daniel. And who's this Elijah that he's speaking of, that Elijah did come? Well, that's, they know he's speaking of John the Baptist. And what happened to John the Baptist as he paves the way for the Lord? He gets killed. What happened to all the prophets? They all got killed. And so Jesus says, don't you see in the Bible, this is what it says. Don't you see in my word, this is what it says. Now, 
all of this is, is interesting and wonderful. What does it mean to me? Uh, I thought about this a lot. I mean, so what? It, it does definitively prove, even if some say Jesus never claimed to be God, which he did, he reveals the, the glory of God in himself right here. He is the glory of God in human flesh. But a couple of verses I want to read to you. Romans chapter 8. Well, let's start with second, we'll start with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me read this one to you, and then we'll finish up with this. 2 Corinthians 4, because this is practical for us. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now, I don't know if some of you are in a place where you're losing heart. You know, maybe you've been really discouraged. You're going through a lot of suffering. You're going through a lot of things. Uh, things aren't working how, how you hoped. You've got a diagnosis with some medical thing going on. And Paul, who's been through the persecution treadmill, says, look, our, look, this is just the truth, isn't it? Our outward man is perishing. All the dust, you, when you dust in your house, that's all your skin cells. Glad I told you that, aren't you? Like pounds and pounds of skin cells. We know it. We look in the mirror, right? We know the outward man is perishing. You can juice and you can smoothie and you can go to the gym and you can get facelifts and liposuction and all that stuff. But you can't keep the outward man from perishing. The inward man, he says, is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're suffering for the cause of Christ, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's such a short time, this life, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You can choose glory now, and you'll have it, and that's all the glory you'll ever have, is the applause that people give you now. Or you can choose glory later. He says, this life, man, what you're going, what you're, whatever you're going to suffer, whatever you're going to go through, whatever kids are going to tease you, whatever thing you're going to be left out of, whatever family is going to ostracize you, he says, it's, a, it's nothing compared to the glory that awaits you. You're not going to get to heaven and go, this is it? That, what? I was ripped off. You're not going to say that. You're going to say, if I had known, I would have given more. I would have done more. I would have lived more passionately. I would have lived more zealously if this, if I knew. Our light affliction is working for us a more, far more exceeding weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. One more I'll read to you, and then we'll close. Phil, if I could have you guys, uh, your praise team, come up here. Romans chapter 8. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to even be compared with the glory of which shall be revealed in you and in me and in those of us who believe. Well, can you prove it? Yes, the Mount of Transfiguration. But I wasn't there. But Peter was. And he says, guys, I was there. I was an eyewitness of his glory. He goes on to say, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he justified. This is our story. And whom he justified, these he also, doesn't say will glorify, these he also glorified. 
That's speaking of us. So I, I don't know what kind of glory you're looking for on earth or what kind of uh, thing you're living for, what kind of thing you're into, but I'm telling you, the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God, the very presence of God. Imagine what it's going to be like to live. Think about hell and heaven. We think, oh, hell, you know, lake of burning fire. I think the greatest disappointment, the greatest uh, uh, pain of hell is going to be the absence of God, the absence of love, the absence of light, the absence of the presence of God, choosing to live outside of the presence of God. That's what gets you there, is choosing to live without God. Heaven, man, I, no words to describe it, are there? Loved ones that have gone on before us, recognizing them, seeing this great reunion, unfathomable. But it gives me a lot of hope, doesn't it? I just, the more I live, the more I look at my life, I say, man, what does it really matter? What, what does this matter? What does that matter? I got one thing to live for. I got a short amount of time on this earth. I'm 46 years old. Tomorrow could be my last day. I don't know. And I want to make the most of it. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. And let's sing.